Hello, and welcome to episode 100 of You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jane. This is wild, Jane. It's been a hundred of, it's been two years of doing this. I and can't we, believe it. And we barely celebrated a year because we were like, we had just entered quarantine and oh. we were like miserable mm. and like a lot of <laughs> shit was going on. Yeah. And we all were just like, ah, and we've been doing this year. That's nice, I guess. But I feel like we could really celebrate this year. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just got some wine. I should open it. <laughs> you should. You should take a drink. I'll drink to that. I'm drinking Coke Zero to that. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. How you feeling? I'm feeling all right. I, um, well, since you asked how I'm feeling, like, uh, f- physically I'm feeling fine. I got vaccinated on Thursday. Yeah. Well, I, got, I got the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine um, because I am a teacher in Maine. Um, otherwise, I would be still waiting. I think the youngest you can be and get the vaccine at the moment, I think they just lowered the age to 50. Mm. But I, you know, to keep my school safe, got my, went and got vaccinated. Um, and I felt sort of like my arm was a little sore the day of, and I felt very tired that night and the next day. Yeah. But I feel fine now. Good. But other than that, it's been beautiful here. Uh, it was very sunny and warm yesterday. I went for a walk and then hung out on yeah, my back porch with my mom. Here today. And I, I have a little sunburn on my forehead. Wow! So, look at you starting starting the season off with poor skincare already. So <laughs> doing great. Uh, how are you doing, folks. Sarah? <laughs> um, I'm good, and I have a story like I always do, but it's a little yeah. bit more of a more serious story that oh, I want to want to put out there, but. Um, it was something, it has to do with the murders in Atlanta, yes, yes, which yes. happened after we had recorded. So it wasn't something that we could really f- talk about yeah. um, in this episode. No, I don't know what you're covering. I don't know what your middle segment, whatever is going on. But you're on middle. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. No, I'm not. I am? Yeah, because last week I was middle and you asked me to, if we could play that game. So that was my middle. I forgot. We can play another game. We can play a different game. (laughs) (laughs) Or we won't play a game. I don't know. My segment's kind of long. I don't know how long yours is. So it might probably kind of long too. Okay, then maybe we just won't worry about it. It's 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 episode 100. We can do whatever we want. I'm sorry. I was like really convinced it wasn't my turn. No, that was my bad. Also, this is our podcast. There are no rules. (laughs) That's true. There are no rules. But anyway, so we weren't able to, this is not something that we've really talked about. Consider this story my middle segment, okay? So last week, if you didn't know, eight people were murdered in Atlanta at three various um, Asian-owned massage spas. Six of the people murdered were women, and they were all Asian-American. Four of them were Korean-American. And so... A lot of events and rallies happened um, in New York over the weekend. I'm sure lots happened in Atlanta. But on Friday night, I went with um, a few of our friends to a peace vigil in Union Square organized by the Asian American Federation of New York for the the victims of this crime and mm-hmm. a sort of a um, anti-Asian hate gathering community space. Mm-hmm. So it started at six o'clock. Um, I was there for about two hours and there were speakers who I was very moved by. 
um, mm -hmm. poets and new trans spoke and she was really incredible. Um, other notable members of the of different Asian American organizations, um, State Senator John Yu, I think is his name. I forget his last name. He spoke, he was the first elected um, Asian American state senator for the state of New York. He spoke, he had a lot of really interesting things to say. Um, a woman performed a uh, Korean healing ritual that was really beautiful to watch. And there were moments that I definitely felt I was like, you know, I can only say this as a white person watching it, but I was like, yeah. yes, I think this speaks to how Asian Americans feel right now based off of the conversations that I had had with my Asian friends and coworkers. Mm -hmm. But then there were also a lot of issues that I took with it. Um, and I'm going to bring up two in particular that I had and that I am still like kind of processing, but I've talked with quite a few people about at this point, which is the third speaker was Chuck Schumer, which at oh. the, when I went to the event and the way the event was advertised, I didn't think it was going to be that high profile of an event. And then I got there and there were lots of news shows there and there was a lot of cops, not a lot, but there was a perimeter of cops, mm -hmm. which I expected but I was like, oh, and then Chuck Schumer spoke. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's the Secret Service. That's Chuck Schumer. Uh, uh -huh. And I was with our friend Sam, who's been on the show. And Sam was like, wait, like they announced it so quickly that it was kind of like, pull back the curtain, push him up, let him speak, get him out of there. Like it was yeah. very like, poof, there he is. And Sam missed the announcement. And she was like, who is it? I was like, that's Chuck Schumer. And she was like, it was so unexpected that people thought that they had like misheard what was happening and all of a sudden he was speaking. He spoke for maybe two minutes and his words were very bipartisan. He, it very much sounded like a political platform that he was putting out there. Um, he didn't mm -hmm. say anything significant about protecting Asian Americans. And he very much portrayed this as an issue that is perpetrated and committed by Republicans. That was a huge point that he made. He kept saying, all of this was made okay by the last president. It was made okay by the other side. He kept putting this off as like, it's the other people. It's the, it's the Republicans, it's the conservatives that mm -hmm. are bigots. It's not us. Like he, I think he said that. He said, it's not us, which, I'm, which I take issue with, and I'm going to explain why in a minute. Yeah. Um, that was the first thing. That was about maybe 20 minutes in. So the crowd wasn't very big yet. We all were kind of just like getting settled, whatever. About an hour and a half in, not long after, well, city city councilman Juamani Williams spoke, who if you have never heard him speak, I highly recommend it. Um, he is a black city councilman who was very active in the Black Lives Matter protests and has a lot of really interesting things to say. And I thought his speech was really wonderful. Um, and then another man spoke and I'm blanking on his name. I didn't write it down, but his, his speech, he began and ended with the audience chanting, no justice, no peace. Mm -hmm. And it was very, it, his speech was a lot about law enforcement and um, the issues that, Black Americans face when dealing with law enforcement and how that echoed across the Asian American community and how we had to be united together in fighting law enforcement and how we have to be upstanders and rely on our community and not rely on lawmakers and not rely on law enforcement, but to be to rely on our communal our communal resources to fix this issue, which yeah. I spoke to a lot of people and I really loved his speech and I thought he had a lot to say. And that was immediately followed by Bill de Blasio, who is a very hated man right now in New York City for a number of reasons. I, I have very particular issues with the way he has been handling schools, but I know mm -hmm. that 
Um, there's he got a lot of ridicule for how he handled the Black Lives Matter protests, which I definitely agree with. He has passed unconscionable laws regarding um, that affect homeless people. Um, mm-hmm. That he has said is for coronavirus protections, but it's quite frankly bullshit. And so people have a lot of issues with him. And this time, because it was an hour and a half in, the crowd was like active at that point. We were very much paying attention and like we had just done a chant. We were all into it. I'd say de Blasio spoke for maybe a minute. I heard very little of what he said because the crowd was just just was just yelling at him, which I yeah. think they should have. They were like, I heard a lot of defund the police. I heard mm. a lot of like, you're a bigot, like yada, yada. And de Blasio very much echoed what Schumer said mm. was this was perpetrated by the other side. Like this is it. This is it. Us. Um, and then he also talked about reporting anti-Asian discri- discrimination to law enforcement or reporting it to the New York City government, which mm. a lot of people don't feel safe don't don't feel safe doing or want yeah. to do because they feel like it's a wasted effort. And so, hearing those two speak, here here's my issue. I think when you portray bigotry as something that is specific to a political party, you remove responsibility from yourself, right? You say, I am a liberal and therefore I cannot be bigoted, I cannot be racist. Or this politician is a Democrat and therefore they stand up for all minority people. Therefore their policies have no racism in them whatsoever. And I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. And I had a long talk about this with one of um, the first grade teachers at my school who is an Asian American. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, they agreed with me and they said that it often portrays this, this idea that the right side as in the conservative side, yeah, are the ones that, you know, have these ideals and uphold these ideas. And the left side are the ones fighting those ideals. When it is just as easy for the left's policies to ostracize people of color. And what this teacher also mentioned is that words of belonging and words of this is America, easily come from liberals just as often as they come from conservatives. And even that idea, even that idea is that this is who we are as Americans is exclusionary because Mm -hmm. so many people who are living in America are immigrants. They are not natural born citizens. And that is still a fight that is going on, particularly in the Asian American community. Um, And this teacher was telling me about how they've been harassed at drugstores and random places about where they are, where they come from. To which I say that just because someone isn't white doesn't make them not American. And I Mm -hmm. think even liberals have a hard time acknowledging that, that an American does not look like you and me, you know, that there is no, there is no what an American looks like, you know, that doesn't exist. But even if they aren't an American, Legally, even if they don't have an American passport, if they don't have a social security number, they still have every right to be here. Yeah. And that's the issue that I take with Schumer and de Blasio's stance is that it's still about this is not who we are as an American, as Americans, which quite frankly, it is. We heard that last year, people saying this isn't us. I think it's exactly who we are. I do. 
but also that they shouldn't need to be one of us for them to be protected. Yes. And that is my problem, you know? That is my issue. And so I was very disappointed and frustrated that Mm -hmm. this event became from being about these women who were murdered to being about... Like a campaign event. A campaign event about the Democrats trying to paint the Republicans as the problem, you know? It's a systematic problem. It's not... Uh, it's not a Republican problem. It's not a Democrat problem. It's a systematic problem. And we're all part of the system. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a very... I had a lot of mixed emotions yeah. leaving it. Um, there, were ta- there were big takeaways for me that I really thought about going into school today. And there were things that really sat poorly with me, um, especially considering... I think I learned a lot from the Black Lives Matter movement and I learned Mm -hmm. a lot about community organizing and what's effective and what isn't. Um, And I still, and I was able to recognize that more readily with this event than I think I would have had I attended a Black Lives Matter event a year ago. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was, it was definitely a very interesting um, experience. And that's just kind of what I wanted to say on that in terms of uh, my personal my personal community experience of this event. Obviously, I can't speak to. I can speak to a horror from the horror of it from an objective standpoint, but I don't think I'll ever yeah. understand it from that very personal standpoint that my Asian American friends have understood it as, and how deeply it has affected them, and how deeply I've seen them. I've seen it hurt them. I got an email from my school department today that was basically like in response to last week's events we love the members of we love the asian members of our community and i was like that's such a weird way of being like racism happened last week heart like yeah (laughs) i was like that really doesn't do much but thanks i I guess i mean i can't respond for them but yeah i feel like i've seen that with quite a few organizations being like we love asian americans yeah and I do, I do, I agree with you that we can't make it as black and white as Republicans did this and Democrats mm-hmm. would never, because I don't think that's the case at all. Mm-hmm. But I do think it is kind of impossible to ignore how much anti-Asian rhetoric was used in the past, by the past administration Absolutely. during the pandemic. That is very yeah. true. But I think my issue was that, um, Particularly Chuck Schumer seemed to paint this as Mm. um, anti-Asian discrimination is something that started with Trump. And a lot of the speakers after Schumer made it very clear that like, if you don't think this is a part of our history, then I don't know what history books you've been reading. You know, they brought up Japanese internment camps. They They talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act. These are all things that happened, you know, way before Trump was ever near a political office. So... Yeah, we can't, and we can't say, you know, hey, this was a, this was a Trump idea. It wasn't, it wasn't, it just wasn't. That's true. But anyway, that's my, that's my serious, that's my serious note. My early middle segment. Would you like to get started? Sure. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because I'm glad that there was some discussion of that in this episode because my topic is not really serious at all. Okay. So it's good that we we had some serious discussion right up front. So 
<laughs> Sarah, are you ready? Episode 150. I... It's 100. <laughs> it's not 150. Why in my head all day I've been thinking 150? No, it's what 100. am I thinking of? <laughs> 100. 100. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. Today is a day of redemption. <laughs> no, Shane, you're not. <laughs> I know exactly what this is. Oh, Shane, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> so many long-term listeners will know that early on in this podcast's run, I put forth that I knew a lot about Larry Stylinson. <laughs> I was like, listen to episode. <laughs> I was like, I know so much about this topic that I don't even need to take notes on it. And I'm not what, laughing at you. I'm laughing at no, this. Yeah. What proceeded to happen was me going blank while we were recording and just like trying to get out a couple like facts I could remember, not really doing it well, leaving out a lot of important things, infuriating a friend of ours who knows way more about it than I did. And, <laughs> and even like our roommate, Kelsey, who like probably knows like, I know she knows quite a bit about it, but like I would she say- She knows about it from like Twitter, not yes. from like, because and she looked it up, you know, yes. not because she was a fan. It was like periphery. Yeah. And I would say everything. at the time, I probably knew a bit more than her. Um, not that she knew nothing. Like she did know a fair amount. And she came out at the end and was like, why didn't you talk about XYZ? It's like, well, because I guess I'm dumb. And then that went on to be our most listened to episode, making me look like a dummy. <laughs> this is so layered. This is oh so oh so so for like for such a long time sarah have been sarah and i have been saying to each other someday i'm gonna redo larry silenson i'm gonna give it justice and today is that day oh my god this is gonna be very different than what i'm talking about but that's fine <laughs> that's okay I, I i love you know a, a zigzag a roller coaster a of an episode all right my precursor to this topic is that Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson are real people who have been harassed about this situation by the media and by their fans for years. Unlike Jimin and Jungkook, they have openly denied the situation. <laughs> but, you know, Jimin and Jungkook, at least, like, they, they haven't said no. Like, they haven't officially been like, it's not true. But right. Louis and Harry have. Yeah. There's two possibilities. Either it's all untrue. Or option B, for legal or personal reasons, they choose to keep it private. So this is not me telling the world to go out and harass them. They get too much of that already. Secondly, I do think that many of these things are taken out of context. And more importantly, I think it is kind of a sad example of toxic masculinity culture that two boys can't be affectionate without like the world being like, oh, secretly gay. Uh, would I yes. love for it to be true? Yes. Am <laughs> I going to give you a bunch of evidence for why I believe it is? Yes. But just be respectful, you know? Uh-huh. Overall. <laughs> Thirdly, <laughs> I would like to beg the Larrys out there to go <laughs> easy on me. Because there are literally thousands and thousands of minutes of uh, ev- pieces of 
of documentation of these two that could be interpreted as evidence for why this is real. I was I really wanted to do like a bullet point like this happened then this happened then this happened. We'd be here for years, okay? Yeah, so we would. I I I'm not exactly going to do that. I'm mainly sticking to basic points and the timeline that the evidence points to. Uh-huh. So I don't want to hear you know from all of the emails we get. I don't want to hear <laughs> all of this <laughs> I don't want to get all of this you know, being like, oh, yeah, you forgot the one time that they were on the red carpet of the Dunkirk premiere and they looked <laughs> at each other or something. I don't know. Right. They weren't they weren't together at the red carpet for that. But but like, I don't want I don't tell me that. Like, oh, you missed this one little interaction. I know I'm going to miss a lot. I know it's yeah. just the case. OK, those are all my little. <laughs> you could do a whole podcast on their interactions. Oh, we're not yeah. Donna, but you could. Um, so. Uh, also, a lot of this, um, I I got a lot of this from Tumblr, and I just I I loved, I loved how sure of herself, so like of sure how sure of themselves. Several different blogs all were like, "This is what happened," and some of it's like, <laughs> "This is pure speculation," but okay. <laughs> all right, so here we go. My first bullet point says, "You and me got a whole lot of history." Whole lot I, I intended on doing many song title jokes. I think I only have two in here because I forgot I was doing that. I'll, I'll try to come up with some. I'll try okay. to do it. Try. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So in 2010, Niall Horan, Zayn Malik, Liam Payne, Harry Styles, and Louis Tomlinson auditioned as solo candidates for the X Factor in England and were put together to form a boy band. Nicole, both Nicole Scherzinger and Simon Cowell claimed that it was their idea I'm going to say it was Nicole's just because I don't like Simon Cowell as a person. Uh, But we don't really know who it was. But regardless, this was when One Direction was born and went on to become the massive giant of a cultural experience that they are today. (laughs) (laughs) Simon Cowell said of the group early on that he thought that they were confident, fun, like a gang of friends and kind of fearless as well. Notice he didn't say they were amazing singers, which I think we can all admit <laughs> that in the early days, they were not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm doing chasing cars is the funniest <laughs> thing I've literally ever seen. They did not win. No, they came in third and that is probably accurate. Um, because I do agree. It was like, oh, this group of like cute boys who like seem to all be friends with each other and like, Like, it's fun, we have a new boy band, but, like, they weren't really there because they were amazing singers. Um, Which I recently learned, my heart goes out to Niall, that management told him very frequently that he was the worst singer of the group and that he needed to, like, work on it. Isn't that devastating? I know. He has one, he is one and a half minutes of solo, of solos on Up All Night. Uh, um, On to Larry, because I don't want to keep you up all night Uh, (laughs) while the band was competing on the x factor they filmed a bunch of videos of the group of them sitting on a stairway in their sort of housing situation where they answered fan questions and just sort of joked around and interacted so that the fans could get to know them better as a group Mm -hmm. and many fans quickly noticed that louis tomlinson and harry styles seemed to be very close and comfortable with each other very quickly 
And thus the fan theory of Larry Stylinson was born. I remember being told about this early on in high school. So it had to be like 2012 at the latest. And again, they started in 2010. Mm. And my friend who told me about this was like, this is a well-established thing. So Larry Stylinson jumped off the dock, like right off the way. I don't know what expression I'm going for, but it happened quickly. Um, the theory is that these two were secretly in love, that Harry Styles, Harry Styles, I keep calling him Harry Stylinson, that Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson were <laughs> secretly in love and couldn't tell the world because either they were told that they couldn't or just because they personally didn't want to. Whatever reason. And when I say they seemed mm-hmm. close, I'm not saying like like they were sitting next to each other, like they like joked around. Like all of them seemed to be at least like friends on some level. But the, like I'm talking like mm-hmm. long, close eye contact, Eskimo mm, yeah. kisses, snuggles. Like it was like intimate. I'm sorry if you, you're going to bring this up later. It's just I have more information on this now this time. But did you see that TikTok that's about how they used to give each other thumbs up all the time and two mm-hmm. thumbs up put together means do you want to have sex <gasps> yeah <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that weird because they, they would never put them together but they would do it to each other and there's a lot of videos of them giving each other a thumbs up very odd around the same time there was a series of tweets that made it clear that these two had already become at least best friends they were they seemed to be much closer with each other than the other members of the group mm-hmm. they were still like i said they were still friends with the other members but these two were like very close um, clearly closer yeah, yeah yeah louis had a girlfriend from his hometown when the band first formed and people thought that maybe that was the reason why these two couldn't be like we're gay and we're dating there was a series of tweets that harry put out um during the time that was that they, they were on the x factor but they were still just filming episodes that weren't live yet there was a couple episodes early on that were like the auditions the judges houses uh, it, like so the world didn't know about them yet they were still like filming mm-hmm. episodes that hadn't debuted um and okay. during that time harry tweeted a lot of very suggestive song lyrics and fans now have like speculated like that's about his time with louis and being so attracted to him which you know it could be but anyway but the biggest t- moment on twitter that was like <gasps> was on september 13th 2010 niall tweeted louis ring me Harry told me something today that you told him. And then all caps, talk to me. That's so, weird. That's aggressive. Yeah. So like, what did he, What did Harry tell him? Like, what, did, what did Harry tell him? I, I don't know. I don't know. And then Louis just responded, iPhone, which I'm assuming just means like, dude, text me. Don't tweet this. I don't know. I don't really understand Louis as a person. Uh, well, also like that was me translating Niall's tweet because there were so many ways that words were like written in a specific way that you like had to pronounce it with an <laughs> Irish accent like <laughs> yeah like something like something was spelled like s-u-m m yeah D- D- <laughs> anyway so during the first nine months of 2011 Louis had broken up with his girlfriend from back home and the band was living in this luxury apartment complex called Princess Park Manor and mm. Harry and Louis shared an apartment at this mm-hmm. time yes, yes I don't yes, yes. I don't think any of the other band members lived together but these two like made the choice to mm-hmm. live together and it, this is the time that most larry's believe that they began officially dating because they were both single finally and 
they were like, okay, let's move in together. And this like relationship began. Whereas before it was more of like a flirtation. Mm-hmm. And there are many moments in interviews where the two demonstrate having inside jokes and they frequently talk about living together. There's this one interview I watched that people are like, and then there's this. And it, it's just the two of them talking about how like wild it kind of is in their apartment. They basically said they had a lot of parties and they drank a lot. And, <laughs> and they caused... Sorry, that's just funny to me because of the people they are. Like, yeah. Thinking, like it's wild, you know? Like, yeah. They said that they did like, they would bring in like personal trainers and they'd have like these like messy workout se- sessions or something. But anyway, <laughs> it seems like them being anyway... like, I'm gonna go flex. <laughs> Um, but the main quote from this interview that people are like, people constantly that I saw referenced several times was, um, the reporters like, oh, you had a huge party and you had to like clean up after it. And then Louis like, yeah, we had to clean up for days. And then Harry like <laughs> looks and then Harry like looks at the camera and goes on hands and knees for two days straight. And people are like on hands and knees for two days straight. That's sexual. That's and very, you know that's very sexual. It is. Harry. He just had that ready to go, you know. He he really did have he that really ready to did. go. He really did. So it was also around this time that the band seemed to be really skyrocketing into popularity, and you know the mm-hmm. whole world had its eyes on them. So this is the point where it is believed that management was like, okay, we should maybe like hide this. So enter mm-hmm. Louis Beard, Eleanor Calder. And at what point? What year was this? This was. Da, 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 like late 2011 okay so up all night had come out yeah okay so uh, the thing that's sketchy about the beginning of eleanor and louis relationship is that there's um conflicting stories about how they met mm. uh one direction management told this story of like oh eleanor has a girl or louis has a girlfriend now her name is eleanor harry introduced them oh but <laughs> Other people have said, no, Eleanor was just a friend of somebody who worked for management. And so they were just like at an event or something, or they met through people. So the fact that the person that introduced them was most likely a member of management, but management is saying Harry introduced them. Yeah. Really feels like management being like Louis in a relationship with a girl and Harry is super on board with it there's no reason he wouldn't be you know right yeah <laughs> it do- it does come off that way it does however in that year and the next Harry and Louis did very little to hide their close relationship during interviews they're like the two cuddliest people you'll ever see the- their inside jokes never end they're just that ve- you know intimacy there were yeah. men intimacy <laughs> there were many 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 videos on youtube that like my friends and i used to watch there were just compilation videos of like their longing glances towards each other said to like avril lavigne song oh yeah now during the tours of you know their concerts the crew began putting up this stuffed build-a-bear on the stage and it was a rainbow bear in a bdsm outfit Mm-hmm. At one point, a smaller bear seemed to join the <laughs> fam. Um, I forgot about the second bear. Oh, yeah. I forget what the second bear is called, but he also has a funny name. 
But the first bear is called Rainbow Bondage Bear, is, is what he was monikered. And Harry mm-hmm. Styles has said that this was an object that a fan threw on the stage during a show, and the crew thought it was funny, so they picked it up, and then, like, from then on for the rest of the tour, they just taped it to the scaffolding of the, like, stage that they built. Mm-hmm. And it was lovingly given the moniker of Rainbow Bondage Bear, and Larry fans began to see it as this, like, symbol of One Direction supporting gay pride and, like, silently being, like, Larry's real. And I talked to Sam about this, who was on, you mentioned her earlier. She's been on the podcast. Um, and she said, I know it sounds silly, but as long as there, as long as Rainbow Bondage Bear was there, we knew Larry was real. <laughs> I love that quote. That's like New York Times reporting right there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the most shocking piece of evidence that I witnessed today, and Sarah, I feel like I need to send you this video, but you can probably also just Google it. Um, I will Google it. At the 2012 Brit Awards, there's this moment. Okay. I can't get over it because it's just, it was so out of character from what I like expected of the two of them, but I don't know what I was even thinking. Anyway, so they had just won an award and Mm -hmm. they're going into a press room to speak to a bunch of reporters. And the award that they won is like a statue of a guy. And Uh uh, one reporter asks, who's going to get to take the statue home? Because they only gave them one statue, even though there are five of them. sucks yeah (laughs) and liam makes a joke that they're gonna break it into five different pieces so that they can each have a part of it and then a different reporter asks who gets to keep the head (laughs) to which um niall is very quick to be like oh i want to keep the head like he's like it's mine it's mine louis then reaches over to harry who's standing next to him and tips harry's mic a bit towards himself and says under his breath, he's, he does kind of seem surprised that the audio is picked up. He says, Harry's getting head. <laughs> to which the entire, like, the three band members to the right of them, <laughs> like, look at them, start laughing, but then, like, quickly go to a different reporter and are like, okay, anyway, next question. <laughs> what? <laughs> and then... He did not say that. He did. And then Harry like pulls the mic back to himself and then like laughs because he gets the joke and then looks so embarrassed. Meanwhile, Louie like acts like he didn't say anything, but then he turns around and the look on his face that he gives the reporter is like, yeah, he said what they said. And he looks so proud of himself. And <laughs> I can't Sarah, when I tell you the energy it exuded of like, yes, we are having sex, like <laughs> <laughs> It was, it was like, it was yeah, palpable. it was so like, so at that point fans were like, so that, that was it. Right. That was Louis being like, yes, we are two men in a sexual relationship. <laughs> like it's confirmed. Like it became canon right then and there. Buzzfeed solved. So, yeah. Buzzfeed solved. Okay. So, so that was the biggest thing today that I was like, oh my God. I like gasped. I, I had to take a moment. Um, <laughs> okay. You need so, a breather. <laughs> That was the time that the Larrys feel like the two of them were definitely in an official relationship that the other members of the band probably knew about, but management was keeping secret. So this time lasts until around 2013. Louis had then been dating, quote unquote, dating Eleanor for a year. And Mm. Harry had been seen with Taylor Swift. Many people believe, yeah. there is a belief of some Larry's that um, while Harry and Taylor did really date and like they did have a real relationship, they were encouraged to by management. Like they were like, Oh, you should meet Taylor. She's really nice. Like go have a deal. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
and, and I can see that being true. I could see their them being like, "Hey, go hang out with them," and then like just them hitting it off because they did date. Like so, that part was real. But anyway, well, it was real that they quote unquote dated. I still don't believe that they really dated. Yeah, but, but yes, they yes. were photographed together, and they have a video kissing. So something yeah. happened. Yeah. So at that point, like Eleanor, or Eleanor. Louie and Harry are both kind of linked to other people at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have just, you know, a lot of pressures on them from being like right. international pop stars. Right. They were still really it's young. It's 2012. It's the golden age of pop music. Yeah, right. it's 2012. So at this time, that is when people think that they like sort of quote unquote broke up if they were ever officially together. Mm-hmm. Like this was the time that they started to kind of like yes. spread apart romantically. But they... I still definitely think to this day they are like deeply connected in their souls. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, okay. But I just need to talk for a little bit about the tattoos that they got around this time. Oh, so, okay. I know that they have a lot of correlating tattoos that yeah. are highly suspicious. Yep. Okay. So beginning in 2013, the two began getting a lot of tattoos. Like Harry has like more than 40 or something. And Liam has like 30 something, many that ta- they're inked, they're covered. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a lot of their tattoos, they don't match exactly, but they are definitely complimentary. Yes. So for example, Harry has like an old timey pirate ship while Louis has an old timey compass. Both are done with very similar pencil line drawing styles um also the like motif of sailing and pirating like is featured in several of their tattoos um there louis has a skull and crossbones harry has has an anchor on his wrist and louis has a like sailing knot on his wrist and there is that song about wanting to build you a boat (gasps) there is there really is i love that there really is i love that song there really is so you know you've got that whole motif now this sounds too adorable to be real, but I kind of think it is. Harry has the word high as a tattoo. And it mm-hmm. looks like something that someone would sketch in like a notebook, like sending a note to their friend in class or like mm-hmm. maybe carved into a desk. It's like that kind of scratchy writing. Yeah. And Louie has a tattoo that says, oops, question mark. And I mean, not question mark, exclamation point. And it's in kind of a similar style. Like it looks like something you'd see written in a notebook. Now there is a theory that some places I read said it was like a theory and other places were like, it's fact. Um, Mm -hmm. I would like to believe it's fact, but you know, I don't have the proof that oops and hi were the first words that Harry and Louis said to one another when they bumped into each other in an X factor bathroom. (laughs) Isn't that so cute? That's that's a very sweet conspiracy. I hope that's true. Harry has a human heart on his arm and in the same spot on the opposite arm, Louis has like an archer's arrow in a mm-hmm. position where if that tattoo were on Harry's arm, it would go straight through the heart. Mm. So people, so uh, that one I'm That's like- That's suspicious. Yep. Okay, now he, he, this one, okay, get ready. Okay, so both Harry and Louis have tattoos on their chests. Oh, I know this one. Oh yeah. It's wild. Yeah, I'm oh, ready. Yeah. Harry has a large butterfly covering up his third and fourth nipple. And Lou, <laughs> you know, little fun fact. <laughs> Which, by the way, the other day I saw a TikTok of that, of when Chelsea Handler interviewed Harry, and it, she's, like, so clearly trying to be, like, 
making fun of him and she's like i saw a rumor on the internet that you have four nipples and he's just like yeah it's true i was born with them and she was like oh oh okay it's like moving on (laughs) yeah he like brags about them he goes oh well i have four so like (laughs) he was just born with them um anyway so yeah so he's a big butterfly on his chest and louis has the words it is what it is written in calligraphy now these tattoos are designed by the same artist Mm-hmm. the artist posted the designs for these tattoos together in a post on his Flickr page years before the singers had them t- tattooed. So they, they had to do a deep dive to find those. Yeah, so the two of them literally had to be like, oh, I like this artist, and be looking together. And right. And like, do a deep dive on his like, page. Like, that was a choice. That was a choice. Like, I'm like, you cannot tell me that that's a coincidence. <sighs> it is not. That's because it's not. This one is just cute, and I, I, I love that Louis is just like, yeah, this is what it is. Um, Louis has a tattoo of a paper airplane, and when a reporter asked him the significance of it, he said that Harry has a necklace of a paper airplane that he loves, and that was the inspiration. It is true. It's like Taylor Swift was photographed wearing a paper airplane necklace. <gasps> they were like, this is the evidence. <laughs> all coming together yeah now finally in my tat my little tattoo segment louis has a bird tattoo on his arm this is the one i was waiting for and harry has two birds on his chest above the butterfly now harry told ellen degeneres that these are sparrows and that he got it right after one direction landed from a flight after a long stretch of traveling and sparrows are his way of memorializing this time of great travel in his life with the band now i don't know if louise is a sparrow but they do they look very similar mm-hmm. and anyway if you google sparrow tattoo meaning it will tell you that sparrows mate for life and that it symbolizes an undying love and commitment to a single person also hey harry um, <laughs> If this ha- if the significance of the sparrows is your traveling with the band, why are there only two birds? <laughs> He's one bird and all and all, all four of them are the other are the bird. Second bird. The other bird. <laughs> hey Harry. <laughs> Hello. Hello. It's truly how I feel right now. So that that's uh, so they're at least, again, very significant to one another. Uh, yes, at the very least. At the very least. So, okay. Towards the end of 2013, the two begin to seem um, uh, like there's some tension in the air, you know? Mm-hmm. They are not quite as snugly during during interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's during this time that Louis's relationship with Eleanor Calder seems to get more serious. He posts about her more often. They're seen together mm-hmm. very often. Um mm-hmm. He talks about her a lot. Um, <laughs> I saw one theory that some fans believe that Harry and Louis were secretly married around this time. I think it's because Louis was getting more serious with Eleanor at that time. And they're like, the only reason. They were overcompensating. Yeah, they're overcompensating. Which I love. I love Larry. I think it's fun. They, they're not secretly married. I'm sorry, guys. I don't think that happened. <laughs> I don't think that happened. I don't think there's a legal marriage between the two of them. So, 
So in 2014, there's a noticeable difference in their behavior in interviews. They are suddenly much less cuddly, and Louis begins to gradually uh, gravitate more towards interacting with Zane than with Harry during these times. Mm-hmm. During this time, Harry was rumored to be spending a lot of time with Kendall Jenner, whom he later officially dated. And <laughs> one of the tumblers I was on today was like, the reason why he was spending time with Kendall is because he had just broken up with Louie and he needed a shoulder to cry on. I was like, okay. I'm reading an article about Liam being like, this is all nonsense and I hate it <laughs> about Larry Stylum. <laughs> he was so funny. I saw him on TikTok a little while ago where he was on a live and someone commented like, if Larry is real, touch your hat. And then I don't even think he saw that, but he like coincidentally like touched his hat. <laughs> And then the next day he like went live again and he made like a condescending comment that was like, I didn't touch my hat or whatever you thought. Like, <laughs> like, okay, Liam, calm down. So again, these two were like, they're links to other people at this point. But at the same time, Louis's mother also got married in 2014 and Harry mm-hmm. publicly attended the wedding and in photographs appears to be very comfortable with Louis's family. Yes. Fits right in, you know? Mm-hmm. At the start like of 2015, Louis and Eleanor broke up. And mm-hmm. Louis was noticed to be going out um, a lot. He was quote unquote sleeping around. I think he was just seen with several different women. Um, mm-hmm. But he ended up announcing later on that year that he and stylist Brianna Jungworth were expecting a baby. Fans were quick to point out that Harry has said many times that he loves babies and he loves interacting with pregnant women in the crowds. And so overall, he's like been vocally like, I love babies and like <laughs> right. that whole thing. But he was like oddly like silent about the situation. Like he didn't say anything. And people were like, you'd think if your good friend was having a baby and you loved babies, you'd be like, yay. But he wasn't. Mm. In fact, the band as a whole seemed to avoid talking about the situation as much as possible. My theory about that is that Brianna Jungworth was not a long-term girlfriend of Louis. Mm-hmm. They didn't really stay in a relationship after the baby was born. Like they co-parent, but he was never like officially right. His, she was never like officially his girlfriend and they were, they were never in a like a long-term relationship. So I I wouldn't be shocked if management was like Maybe don't talk about that a lot because some people might think it's super scandalous. Right. Uh, that you're like having a baby out of wedlock or whatever, or not even or out of. With like even... a woman you hooked up with. Yeah. Briefly. Essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Louis dated numerous women before and after that in 2015. And Louis. yeah, later in that year, he began a relationship with actress Danielle Campbell. It lasted like a month or two. Now, when the group announced that they would take a one-year hiatus, <laughs> quote-unquote, the two seemed more relaxed around each other that whole year, 2015, and it's suspected that with the en- with the end of the band looming, that perhaps, like, bygones should be bygones and all that. Like, even though we were in love and then we had this big breakup, like, we should, like, we're gonna miss each other, so like we we don't need to hate each other <laughs> this like got me but at the end of their final concert as a band the four members finished the show they performed drag me down niall says see you soon to the f- crowd like a <laughs> you bitch, son of a bitch niall. <laughs> i mean niall did put out the 
after, but the fact that he was like, we so will see you soon. I was like, get out of here, Niall. Also, get like, you got, y'all are fools. That is a goodbye album of I've never, of I've ever heard one. <laughs> anyway, so the four of them are up there. They finish their final song. And the last thing they do is they go around and give each other hugs. Liam and Niall hug. Niall and Harry hug. Liam and Louie hug. Niall and Louie hug. Liam and Harry hug. And then finally, Harry and Louie hug and it's such a like moment of like Louis hugging someone else and he turns and Harry's there and he's like we might as well and they like hug and it's not super long and then like Louis kind of walks away like with a face like uh, like he doesn't look thrilled but the crowd when these two hugged <laughs> went wild and the fact that it was the very last thing to happen at their very last concert right. was like such a finale <laughs> I saw a TikTok that was like one Direction began and, en- and ended with Louis and Harry hugging. Just like <laughs> devastating. Oh, uh, the crowd went, uh, oh, that, that got me. Um, <laughs> so while I do believe that Larry probably existed in some form of, or another, uh, I do think the two were at least incredibly close friends. Although there are some theories that are pretty out there. Um, for example, in 2016, Louis' son, Freddie Tomlinson, was born. A lot of Larrys were like, that child doesn't look like him. It's not really his. It's just a Babies scheme. Babies don't look like anything. The, yeah, exactly. It was, they thought it was <laughs> a scheme by the management to keep Louis even further in the closet. But one, like, it's his son. And the, the whole thing seems kind of sad to be like, that's not your baby. Like, Right. <laughs> that's upsetting. It's his family. Like, let him be. Um, also, if he wants to claim that's his son, that's his business, you yeah. know? Also, it was an infant. Babies don't look like anything. Just <laughs> they really don't. Lumps. And <laughs> now that Freddie is a little bit older, he does look a lot like Louie did at that age. So it's definitely Aww. his kid. Um, during 2016, Louie's mom sadly passed away. And shortly after, he performed on The X Factor. Uh, and all three bandmates came to support him and were backstage to give him support. And... Niall and Liam both were very like publicly supportive of Louie on social media and were like there for him in that way. But Harry didn't, leading fans to suspect that he was most likely being supportive of Louie in a more personal way. Um, Per like probably like, you know, sending him personal messages rather than like tweeting or right. some were like, no, he's definitely with him. Like, he's at his family's right. home taking care of him. It's like, oh, that might not be true, but, you know, I, I support you with the <laughs> thinking. Um, yeah, although those Christmas videos from Christmas 2019 were pretty <gasps> implicating. <gasps> okay. <laughs> Shortly after this, a few key things happen. Louis breaks up with his girlfriend, which mm-hmm. could have been for a plethora of reasons, but many are like, it's because after Louis' mom died that Harry and him were spending more time together. So he broke up with his girlfriend because he and Harry were falling back in love, which very, it could have been true. Um, And not long after this whole situation, Harry releases the song, Two Ghosts. Here's some (laughs) lyrics from Two Ghosts. Same lips red, same eyes blue, same white shirt, couple more tattoos. But it's not you and it's not me. It's about Louis. It's about Larry. It's about Larry. It's about me. <laughs> okay. All right, um, all right. All right. It's not about you. It's not you and it's not me. Taste so sweet. Look so real. Sounds like something that I used to feel. 
but I can't touch what I can, uh, what I see. We're not who we used to be. We're not who we used to be. We're just two ghosts standing in the place of you and me, trying to remember how it feels to have a heartbeat. And then I'm aware of the lyrics of two ghosts. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> anyway, but that one, that one, I'm like, okay, I'd believe you if you told me it was about Louis. But also around the same time, Louis releases the song Habit. Here are some lyrics okay, from now habit. habit. We have an argument here. <laughs> I always said that I'd mess up eventually, which this is to support the like our the theory that they had briefly gotten back together and then mm-hmm. it didn't really work out, so they broke up again. Mm-hmm. I told you. So what did you expect from me? It shouldn't come as no surprise anymore. I know you said you'd give me another chance, but you and I knew the truth of it in advance. That mentally, you and I were already out the door. Um, took some time because I've run out of energy of playing someone I've heard I'm supposed to be, which <clears throat> management being like, you're a straight man. Um, mm-hmm. And he's like, mm-hmm, I'm supposed to be a straight man. But honestly, I don't, <laughs> yeah, playing that role. But honestly, I don't have to choose anymore. It's been ages, different stages, come so far from Princess Park. Princess Park mm. is the name of the building in which he lived with Harry. With Harry, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty, that is pretty incriminating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In 2017, Louis got back together with Eleanor Calder, but many on TikTok will point out to you that the woman- <laughs> TikTok has all the power here. Yeah. Um, the woman that he is spotted with that is allegedly Eleanor looks drastically different, <laughs> different from, than the first from the first Eleanor. <laughs> yeah, it's like you could look at side by side pictures of the same of somebody that's supposed to She's be the same taller. person. They're different heights. It's like two drastically different people. It's like there's no way. So people are like, this is an actress who put on like a like a brown a brunette beard and was like, you are Eleanor. Go. I mean, not beard wig, but Freudian slip. Um, (laughs) in 2018 and 2019 there was not a great deal of public contact between the two of them Mm. and I loved this quote from one Tumblr blog as for today this is written in 2020 Louis and Harry have not been seen in the same place for almost 1500 days on the 10th anniversary (laughs) they could say three years (laughs) on the 10th anniversary of One Direction the both of them tweeted about the celebration and Louis followed Harry on Instagram, which brings us to the funny point that all four (laughs) of them follow Harry on Instagram, but he doesn't follow any of them. He also doesn't follow his own mother. So who knows what he's doing? (laughs) Yeah. With the big boost of TikTok use during the pandemic, there has been almost a Larry Renaissance, I would say. I would agree. I would say that there is a Larry Renaissance. Where users have been posting moments of evidence between the two of them. But the biggest bit of news worth discussing is that a lawyer who represents several members of One Direction is allegedly going after Simon Cowell for his past treatment of artists. Mm -hmm. And it's a big belief amongst the Larry community that Simon Cowell was the one who told louie and harry that they couldn't publicly be a couple and this is the reckoning and this is the reckoning and they're going after him for homophobia and forcing them to be closeted so We're we'll see what it. happens you know so excited. not a lot is public knowledge a lot of this was like figured out through people who were like okay let me c- draw s- connect some dots here but right of course um so that's <laughs> that's what i got on larry 
um that again redemption arc there are many 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 little tiny moments you could analyze and break down we'd be here forever right. um we would. but that is overall the like major pl- points on the timeline yeah yeah i just what happened in princess park i just think they had to at, at least like cut <laughs> they have a touched penises times. like yeah <laughs> i'm gonna say it i'm gonna say it <laughs> I'm glad you feel confident enough to do that. But again, I like I said, it's a fun thing to theorize about on the internet, but I feel like we have to be past the we time can't harass where we them, yeah. harass them or other members of One Direction. Because I get the right. feeling that like Liam and Niall like are like feel weird talking about their friends in that way still. So like, right. like right. if it's not true, it's like weird to be talking about this like potential relationship. And if it is true, like you're like it's like you're tricking them into outing their friends so and it's, right that's true that's a very good point uh, yeah so try to um, like, be respectful but of course of course thank you for bringing up that very important point about respecting people's privacy they are celebrities but they yeah. still have earned privacy which i just want to yeah. i have two things that i want to say one yes is that um my newest favorite piece of larry evidence is that in the music video for Miss You by Louis Tomlinson, which is an absolute banger, my favorite Louis, Louis Tomlinson song. It's so good. He's walking through like an abandoned building, but then all the lights uh-huh. go off and there are black lights and he's like walking through yeah. it. And someone pointed out that there's black light graffiti in there and it looks like it spells styles, <gasps> which is very pointed and odd, which that's been my new my newest piece of info. That my second thing is actually about like respecting celebrities' privacy, which is that recently I learned um that in Korea they have a particular term for um crazed fans that are like stalkerish and it's very like Ooh. anti their culture to view photos they take or view media they take of K-pop idols. Um they're called Saesong. I think that's how you say it. Mm-hmm. I've never heard it said out loud, so that's a guess. But it's, like, a huge thing in Korea to be, like, for, like, like armies, for example, are, like, del- like if someone posts a Saesong photo, they'll be, like, delete this as Saesong Tokai. Mm-hmm. Because it's considered, like, very disrespectful of their, yeah. um, of their, of their privacy. Which I think is interesting. Um, and I'm surprised that we, like, don't have a term for that in English, considering how much, like, celebrity stalking happens i'm talking about like they follow them around constantly yeah. they get access to their private i'm not talking about like you look up photos of them on the internet i'm talking like verifiable uh, stalking you imagine know? how different britney spears's life would be exactly thank you for all that fabulous information i hope i uh, earned redemption you've redeemed in my in my mind you've redeemed yourself um this time i knew more about it going in so i can say mm. that i feel like you've covered some good yep. stuff um yep so that's nice my topic is very different <laughs> i love that something for but, everybody although i don't even know what it is yet, but i'm excited yeah. um but it is very it is a very sarah bedwell topic oh my um, gosh it's gonna be like true crime related or the titanic related or um, i already did titanic so you, you did, it's not you true did. it's not true crime and it's not the titanic what what are your other guesses what could it be related um, literature to? um it's not literature uh bts at the it's not moment bts it's not bts <laughs> it's about an italian person which for one of my picks i've already done an italian woman and now i'm gonna do a different italian woman i love that that is on brand um today i would like to talk about last time i talked about an italian noble i talked about um catherine de medici 
And today I would like to talk about my absolute favorite painter of all time, the incredible Artemisia Gentileschi, who is the most notable female artist of the 17th century. And Jane, you're gonna love her. <laughs> I can't wait. You're gonna love her. She is an Italian Baroque painter. So Artemisia Lomi Gentileschi was born in Roma on July 8th, 1593. She was a cancer. <laughs> she, <laughs> she was the oldest child of Prudenzia di Ottaviano Montoni and Orazio Gentileschi, who was also a Tuscan painter. Artemisia's mother tragically died in 1605 when Artemisia was only 12 years old, and it is around that time that Artemisia began painting with her father in his workshop. Artemisia showed much more enthusiasm and talent for art than her brothers. Her father was a pupil of Caravaggio. Um, and if you, if you know anything about painting um, or if you've ever seen a Caravaggio painting, you may not realize who it is, but Caravaggio is the guy who all of his paintings are on very, very dark backgrounds and the people are very like pale and white. So he was sort of a champion of this dark versus light motif that really categorized the Baroque period. Um, and he's considered like the most important Baroque painter, I would say, mm -hmm. I would venture to say. Uh, and that was the style that Artemisia's father very much painted in. And so Artemisia took a very similar approach to painting, but they had one key difference. Orazio was very, his paintings were very, were highly idealized. Everything was very representative or people were making very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like big expressive faces, almost caricature-y, but still like, still based in realis real, realism, but very heightened. Whereas mm -hmm. Artemisia, Artemisia prioritized realism in her work. And even at a young age, Artemisia showcased the feminine viewpoint in her work. So whereas most paintings at the time, because they were by males, centralized the male figures in her painting, in their paintings, her paintings were almost entirely centralized around women. Nice. Um, a very good example of this is that many Renaissance artists were painting the Bible story of Susanna and the Elders. This story goes that Susanna was a virtuous young woman who was bathing in her garden when two older men decided to spy on her over the garden wall. And the men suddenly accosted her, threatening to either rape her, if, if, if make her submit and rape her, um, or they would soil her reputation by spreading a rumor that they had found her with a lover. In men's depiction of the story, in male painter's depictions, um, the objectification of her body is very lewd. Like she's shown posing with her legs spread open or um, some show that men are ripping the, away her clothing. It's like very violent and harsh yeah. and is very much about the men's gaze on her. But Artemisia's version so shows Susanna with her arms outstretched as if to push the men away. And her body is also leaning away from men, her face clearly in anguish. Um, and Susanna is very clearly the central figure of this painting. It is about her emotions and her feelings, not about the men's feelings. Me too, leaning away from men in anguish. <laughs> um, I highly recommend you look up the painting. It's Susanna and the Elders. It was painted in 1610 um, when Artemisia was only 17 years old. You should look up 1610 or Susanna and the Elders 1610 because she painted it again later in her life. <gasps> oh, wow. Um, but for now, look up the one from 1610. 
Um, again, oh. she completed this when she was only 17 years old. And today the painting resides in a royal palace collection in Germany. That's amazing like, for a 16 year old. I couldn't, right? I couldn't do that now. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing. Like, it's truly amazing. It looks like she, a masterpiece. It is. It's, it is a masterpiece. In 1611, when Artemisia was just sorry of 18, her father, Orazio, was working with painter Agostino Tassi to decorate some palace walls in Rome. Content warning here. Tassi visited Orazio in his home, and he raped Artemisia with another man, Cosimo Corley. Um, because of this, Artemisia's dignity was quote-unquote destroyed, and the only way to restore her dignity was to keep having sexual relations with Tassie under the assumption that they were going to get married. So she figured if she could continue to voluntarily sleep with him, yeah. he would marry her. And so her reputation would remain intact. Um, but as it turns out, Tassie was already married. <sighs> there encounters went on for about nine months until Tassi rebuked his promise to marry her. So Orazio, Artemisia's father, pressed charges against Tassi. And during the trial, a lot of information about him came out. It turns out that he was already married, like I said, and he was planning to murder his wife <gasps> because he had also been sleeping with his sister-in-law. <gasps> yes. He was also planning on stealing some of Orazio's paintings. Um, and at the trial, Orazio did accuse him of stealing a painting of Judith. Now, I want you to remember Judith because she's going to come back a lot. This trial okay. went on for seven months. Um, and at the trial, Ar Artemisia testified that she was painting when Tassi came into the room shouting, not so much painting, not so much painting. He then grabbed her painting palette and brushes and threw them to the floor. And though she fought and scratched, um, she she claimed to have even tried to yank his penis off. Um, she was she was unsuccessful nice. in fending and getting him off of her. Um, she finally did attempt to attack him with a knife, stating, "I'd like to kill you with this knife because you have dishonored me." But she did not. She she threw it at him, but he managed to shield shield himself. Um, and she told him that she wished him dead. At the trial, this part's like very heartbreaking. Artemisia was actually tortured using thumb screws to prove she was telling Oof. the truth um, because they didn't have a, that was like their primitive lie detector test. Um, and as she was being tortured, she was said to have cried out to Tassi, this is the ring you give me and these are your promises. As she's having like a screw dug into her hand. <sighs> Which like, this woman literally being tortured is like to look at the man who raped her and be like this is your promise to me like oh my god what a woman um so the only reason at the time that tossi could be put on trial was because he stole artemisia's virginity and essentially her entire trial rested on the fact that she was a virgin um but because she didn't yield under torture and she was like no this is what happened um he was he was found guilty and he was sentenced to a five-year banishment from rome um which was actually never enforced uh, now course. an interesting side piece is that in 1976 a painting was discovered in australia that some believe artemisia painted during the trial 
The painting is titled Mother and Child, and it depicts an anguished woman holding a baby and her breast is bleeding seemingly because of the baby. Those who believe it is Artemisia's work think that the baby represents Tossi. It's a very powerful painting. So after Tassi was sentenced, um, but still sort of wandering the streets of Rome, Orazio wanted to get his daughter away from the city. So he arranged Artemisia's marriage to Pier Antonio Statesi, Statesi um, who was a Florentine artist, and they moved to Florence. She ended up living in Florence for eight years. And while in Florence, Artemisia became a very successful court painter. The Medicis were her patrons, and she continued to paint even as she gave birth to five children in eight years. Sadly, only two Ooh. of them survived infancy. While she was there, she also had a torrid affair with a nobleman named Francesco Maria Marenghi. And so all this was going on. She was a very busy lady. Artemisia was the first woman to be accepted into the Accademia dell'Arte del Disegno, which means the Academy of Art and Drawing. And she gained mm -hmm. favor while in Florence with Cosimo Due de' Medici, um, who is a very mm -hmm. notable Medici figure. And she also had some friendship with Galileo Galilei. Oh. During her time in Florence, wow. she discovered that nobles loved paintings with biblical or mytholo mythological figures in contemporary clothing. Um, and she began to paint those figures very often. In 1615, at only 22 years old, she gained the attention of Michelangelo Buonarroti, um, a relative of that Michelangelo. Um, he was oh, his okay. great, he was his grand nephew. This Michelangelo was building the Casa Buonarroti and he commissioned Artemisia to contribute to a painting for its ceiling. Artemisia at that point was in the late stages of pregnancy, but she completed the painting anyway. She did her work. Um, she was also paid three times more than any other artist participating in the series, which really shows how valued and respected she was in Florentine society as an artist, that she was paid that much more. Get it, girl. Yeah. Her final painting, Allegory of Inclination, depicts a nude female figure looking inquisitive, holding a compass with a star above her head. Um, and she's like floating on a cloud. It's very soft colors. It's a beautiful painting. And many people believe that this was a self-portrait of herself. Um, it's called Allegory of Inclination again, if you want to look it up. Beautiful painting. Also during her time in Florence, Artemisia began painting Judith. I mentioned before that her father, Orazio, had accused Tassi of stealing a painting of Judith. Judith is another notable female biblical figure who killed Holofernes, who was a ruthless general who slaughtered Jews in Bethulia. So she's a popular Old Testament figure. Um, Judith got close to Holofernes by seducing him and she got him drunk. And then once he had seemingly taken her to his, safe, to, to his chamber for safety and sexual intercourse, she beheaded him with the help yeah. of her maidservant. His death eventually led to the defeat of his army and the protection of the Jews of Bethulia. So she's seen as a hero for that reason. Now, Artemisia did do her own version of her father's painting, Judith and Her Maidservant. They're both called Judith and Her Maidservant. Um, but after finishing this painting, Judith remained a subject of Artemisia's for a number of years. 
While other artist depictions of Judith often show her as timid or remorseful, um, and on all the paintings where she's holding the sword beheading him, she's kind of stepped far away from him. She's like far removed from Holofernes. Holofernes, again, is very much the center of the piece because he's the one being beheaded. While that was the most common depiction, that was not the case for Artemisia's portrayals of Judith. Arguably, Artemisia's most famous painting, um, Judith Beheading Holofernes, which resides at the Galleria Uffizi today, shows Judith as a calculating, unremorseful, and unfazed person with a sword plunged into Holofernes' neck. Um, just, I wouldn't say that she's that she does it with wrath, but it definitely is a very unemotional, like cold moment in terms of judith is clearly in the painting sure of what she is doing whereas many other paintings show judith as being unsure or afraid or i don't know if this is the right thing whereas mm. like artemisia's painting is very graphic this is my literal favorite painting in the world it is i saw it at the galleria uffizi it is it, it has stayed with me for five years now it is such a gorgeous painting um if you want to look it up it's called judith beheading holofernes incredible painting there are six versions of this painting known to exist the most famous one being in florence but there's also one in detroit that is um almost an exact replica except judith's dress is a different color so she painted judith a lot mm -hmm. now this in itself indicates that artemisia definitely identified with judith in many ways but if that weren't enough to show artemisia kind of inserting herself into the story in the final version which is the version at um the uffizi judith is wearing a bracelet that has the symbol of artemis on it so it really just like cinches together yeah artemisia yeah that this was like a woman that judith that um artemisia valued and really saw herself in yeah in 1620, word of Artemisia's affair had spread throughout the Florentine court, and the family, unfortunately, had to relocate to Rome. Only a few months after arriving in Rome, Artemisia's son, Cristofano, died. Um, and at this point, uh, at this point, her family kind of fell apart. And by 1623, it appears that her husband had vanished. Now, many people believe that she actually left him. So she became a single mother to Prudencia, her daughter. Hmm. Now, Rome offered opportunities for new patrons, which was exciting. Artemisia also learned new styles of painting while she was there. She painted a second rendition of Susanna and the Elders, which was done in, 19, in 1622. Um, and she completed this at the Bolognese School, and it showcases a new artistic style. She also did another painting of Judith and her maidservant, which shows the two of them trying to sneak away from Holofernes' head, sneak away with Holofernes' head. Mm-hmm. And it shows a clear, like, between the first one that she did that was sort of an imitation of her father's and this one, there's a lot more um, playing with color and light. The emotions are very are more clear in the later version in terms of them being not devious, because that's not the word I'm looking for, but them definitely trying to, like, sneak away, you know, and sort of, again, more calculating. Mm-hmm. Um, Artemisia then spent a few years in Venice between 1627 and 1630, although it's a little unclear exactly how long she was there. But in 1630, she moved to Naples. Some believe that she may have been invited there by the Duke of Naples, who at the time owned three of her paintings and clearly was a fan of hers, um, and he would go on to be a patron of hers. And at this time, she began painting for cathedrals, painting more traditional biblical characters like St. John the Baptist, 
um, and she sort of moved away from what art historians refer to as the power the power of women, which is mm. um, like Judith, Susanna. Um, Trying to think of another example. Uh, oh, Susan! Not Eth- n- not Ethel. Who? What's the other? What's the Esther? Um, Esther. She painted a lot of women like that. This was more that she was painting saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1638, Artemisia joined her father in London at the court of Charles I. And her and her father began working together again until her father died in 1639. At that point, Artemisia was working on commissions in England. So she stayed there until 1642, smartly leaving just before the English Civil War. Good timing. Good timing good timing not much is known about her life after that most people believe that she went back to naples um there are some letters dated around 1650 from naples that she wrote um so this part sort of becomes a mystery she was getting older she was in her 60s um so she was approaching her 60s -hmm. so she was sort of slowing down um it was once believed that she died in 1652 or 1653, but more recent evidence shows that she took a commission in 1654, although the commissions that she was taking at that time would have mostly been completed by her assistants. Most now believe she died in a plague that swept Naples in 1656. Mm. Tragically, only one of Artemisia's children survived to adulthood. Her daughter Prudentia, who was named after Artemisia's mother, um, was also a painter, but unfortunately, none of her work survives, or none that we know for short is hers um, survives today. But we do know that she was a painter. Artemisia remained notable to patrons of the arts and some art, art historians, but unfortunately, for many years, centuries even, her work was incorrectly attributed to men, specifically her father. A lot of people would say this is um, a Gentileschi and they would assume it was Orazio Gentileschi. Um, And this is why many of her works are still being discovered today. One of her works was discovered in 2020. Um, So they're still definitely piecing together what belongs to her and what was incorrectly attributed to other Baroque painters um, who were working in Naples because Mm -hmm. this is the Renaissance. There were so many of them that it was easy for someone to be like, yep, that's mine. According to Robert Longhi, who is an Italian art critic, Artemisia was, quote, the only woman in Italy who ever knew about painting, coloring, drawing, and other fundamentals. There are about 57 works by Artemisia Gentileschi, and 94% of them feature women as protagonists or equal to men. And that was in 1916. Yeah. There are more now, which I think is a lovely, a lovely, lovely, lovely statistic. Um, Another 19th century art critic said no one would have imagined that it was the work of a woman. The brushwork was bold and certain and there was no sign of timidness, which is probably another reason that her work was so often attributed to men was because she was so sure Mm. um, and because her work was so defined and poignant and she once she once was quoted as saying that she wants to paint work that speaks for itself and having seen her work in person and reading what other artists say about her work it is true that when you look at her painting you are met with emotion um and that you see the emotions of the painting first before you see the objects in it and that's not something that a lot of that that was something that really only the best of the male painters were doing and so it really shows how she was one of the best and that her work was so bold and enticing and um, it really drew you in. And that kind of talent just wasn't, it's not that it wasn't common in women. It wasn't common for them to be able to showcase it. 
which is why so much of her work that makes sense yeah sort of muddled and lost yeah Feminist artists also praise Artemisia for expressing her rebellion against the expectations of women. Judith W. Mann wrote in 2001, Artemisia's full creative power emerged only in the depiction of strong, assertive women that she would not engage in conventional religious imagery such as the Madonna and child or a virgin who responds with submission to the Annunciation and that she refused to yield her personal interpretation to suit the tastes of her presumable male clientele, which is super true. And she yeah. like she never painted whatever everyone was painting the Madonna at the time, and she was like, "No, I'm going to paint these other women that I find much more interesting," you know? Yeah. Because they, I think she really related to the fact that they lived a real painful experience because the beginning of her life was marked by this very traumatic event, um, which is why yeah. she was so inspired by Susanna and Judith. Some critics say that Artemisia became characterized by sex and violence in the decades after her death, and there is debate over whether or not Artemisia's legacy has ever stretched beyond her rape, that because, because she had this very public trial and then ended up painting about women who were victims of violence, that very much became a huge part of her identity. Um, and some art critics say it's like, oh, that's all we ever remember her for. It's like, oh, that's all she ever talked about, yada, yada. Um, but most art historians are quick to draw links between do the Susanna and Artemisia and how she clearly identified with those two characters. But it's important yeah. to keep in mind that Judith's legacy is not about sexual violence. Did Judith, was Judith a woman who could only get the upper hand on a man because of his desire to have sex with her. Yes. But Judith was a political hero and she was a war hero. And that's also something that Artemisia identified herself with, um, which I think is, you know, just as important as any trauma that she experienced and her expressing that trauma. And many feminist scholars now believe that Artemisia's work was a quest for justice for women. Yeah. Artemisia would repeatedly complain about the pitfalls of competing in an exclusively male domain. There were not really any other notable women painters at the time quite at her caliber mm -hmm. um, with as much funding and patronage as her, as her. She wrote to her last major patron, Don Antonio Rufo, you feel sorry for me because a woman's name raises doubts until her work is seen. If I were a man, I can't imagine it would have turned out this way. And she was speaking about how he was trying to haggle prices with her. And she found that very insulting. This was in like 1650 after she's had this long, illustrious career. And she, yeah. this was in 1649. She wrote this to him. I think your most illustrious lordship will not suffer any loss with me and that you will find the spirit of Caesar in the soul of a woman. Which I think is such a, such a good quote. That is so good. In 1653, what was originally thought is shortly after Artemisia's death and now seems to be a little bit before, poets Pietro Michele and John Francesco Loredan collaborated and published a poem written in her voice. Like it was supposed to be from her perspective. And the poem goes, in painting the portraits of this one and that one, I acquired infinite merit in the world. In carving the horns of the cuckold that I gave to my husband, I abandoned the brush and took up the chisel. Ooh. Which I think is so cool. Um, and that is Artemisia Gentileschi. That's so cool. I'd never heard of her. She 
I am obsessed with her. I think she is so cool. Um, I didn't know who she was until I went to the Uffizi and our teacher, we were like leaving the gallery. It was her, her painting because the paintings, the paintings are on chronological order. So Caravaggio is like pretty late and Baroque is pretty late because that's like pretty much as far as the, the gallery goes. And so we're like heading mm -hmm. out and he stopped and goes, wait, 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 this is actually really important. And he like showed us Judith and <laughs> Hall of Fernies, beheading Hall of Fernies. And I was like floored. It's uh, it's not that large. It's, I mean, it's larger than the Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> it's this incredible painting with so much. Like when you look at it, you have this like, oh god. And then he was like, yeah, and a woman painted this, and we all were like, really? Because we hadn't seen anything else in the Uffizi that was painted by a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think she's incredible. And when when we learned about her, he was like, yeah, he she painted this as sort of a revenge story because this man had raped her. Oh. But I think there is so much to her story that is so fascinating and so interesting. And I think it is so much to her credit of her talent and her merit that she was able to, you know, single-handedly get the patronage of these very wealthy Italian yeah. nobles in the 1600s and that she was so valued in society um, and she was seen as this really important artist. I just think that's really cool. It is. If you're looking up the painting, um, make sure you put in her name because there's a couple different paintings by that name. And yeah. Hers Julie, is the yeah. best. <laughs> yeah, but like, it's really cool when you look at hers next to the other ones because you can see exactly what you mean about how and the other ones, it's about Holofernes. It's about the fact yeah. that it's about his pain and him getting beheaded. But in hers, it is about Artemisia plunging yeah. a sword through his neck. Like, she is the main yeah. character. And it's crazy how, like, just slight changes change, alter the entire tone of the painting. And Jesus I think, I, like, I'm, I, I've taken a heart history class. I'm not an art historian, you know? But mm -hmm. I would say that any person looking between the two paintings, looking between a different Judith beheading Holofernes and looking at hers would be able to notice mm -hmm. how different hers is. Yeah, that's so cool. That is everything we have for episode 100. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com and we would love to put it on our show. Okay, Jane, you know what I've been wondering? <laughs> what have you been wondering, Sarah? It just like occurred to me that I want to learn about the Iditarod. <laughs> <laughs> like the dog sledding thing? Yes. Okay. Look. <laughs> like I want more information on that. Yeah. 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 I'll look it up. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I know that was really random. I was just like I saw something about no. Hawaiian natives and then I was like I don't really know anything about Hawaiian natives or not or Alaskan natives, but I do want to know about the idea <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'd be happy to learn about that. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Sarah. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what I've been wondering? What? What the heck are credit scores and, like, what are they? Uh, okay. I, 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 I know how you try and get a good one. 
Uh, <laughs> I, I technically know what they are, but I don't know. You want to know how you get a good one? Yeah. Or like, why, or why we need them. Why well, we yeah, need them. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I can tell you that. Talk to me about finances. <laughs> okay, I, won't, I don't want to, but I will. <laughs> I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. All right, Thanks. everyone. That's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much on for the 101 Dalmatians episode. The 101 Dalmatians <laughs> episode next week. Um, and then the week after will be 102 Dalmatians. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. This is, you know, what I've been wondering.